0: you're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King.
1: Welcome. Well, you know what this episode is about, don't you? What else could it be about? It's a new sewers Canal crisis called the Red Sea Crisis by some, and specifically, we'll be looking at the many and varied ways that this is now impacting the work-life balance of anyone in or reliant on shipping and international trade. In short, it's about what's happening now and what to expect next. If playing all to me on this episode, we have three Ms. That's the Lodestars, Mike Wackett, Myra Logistics MD, Jim Powell, and a man who's been there, done it, and he's got so many t-shirts, he needs a new wardrobe.
0: It's the president of John Monroe Consulting. It's John Monroe. If you're sitting in Ningbo and you're trying to make a booking, The question is, do you have equipment? And right now, we're already seeing the equipment, as well as space, start to dry up.
1: Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. What a start to a year. Today, as trailed, we'll be exploring what the de facto closure of the Suez Canal means for global supply chains. But first up, a quick reminder that you can find the Lodestar podcast on all platforms and on the along with so much value-adding daily news, that if it was a container slot, no doubt it would come with a surcharge or three. But it's not, and it doesn't, so it's free, just like this podcast. So please subscribe, like, and follow wherever you're listening. It really does help us keep providing you with this content. We've got some great guests coming up, but front and center today is the Lodestar's Stars one and only Sea Freight correspondent and guru. It's Mike Wackett. How are you doing, Mike? I'm good, Mike, and uh, happy New Year. I'm
2: never too sure with how long you're supposed to say Happy New Year. I had an office in France some years ago, and I used to be getting Happy New Year cards well into the end of January. So, but I'm doing well.
1: I don't know. Is there It's an etiquette about this. I mean, is it? I, I always sort of think, well, if I haven't spoken to someone, is it probably February? I suppose,
2: yeah, yeah,
1: you're pushing it when you're getting into February, I suppose and We can just move straight into Chinese New Year and start greeting people on that basis in February So, Well, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true
1: um, Mike, there's a lot going on at the moment You've been heading up the stars sewers coverage Which is hitting supply chains and, and rates and causing mayhem I called it in my intro a de facto closure of the Suez canal Is that strictly true? Do we know how many container ships are still using the Suez Canal and Red Sea and braving Houthi attacks?
2: Well, I think after last night's um, attack by the US and UK on some of those Houthi areas, um, it doesn't seem to be that many now. I think there were niche carriers using it, some of the smaller guys. None of the big Carriers were using it apart from the odd, apparently the odd CMA CGM ship that might have been going that way, courtesy of a French Navy ship. But no, not many now. I think really it's, and everybody really is now taken into, um, right, we're going around the Cape and that is going to last for some time and perhaps even longer than we might have thought before.
1: Just to clarify to listeners, we're talking on the Friday, the, the 12th of January. And there was attacks by Western navies on uh, Houthi-held positions in in Yemen last night. And as we come into the weekend, there's fears that this conflict might escalate further around uh, the region. But from a supply chain point of view, Mike, let's unpack this. What sort of capacity has been taken out of the global container fleet due to these diversions around the Cape away from Suez Canal? And what sort of impact is this having on that supply demand balance for container ships and slots? I, I think the... Analysts
2: will tell you that it's somewhere around about a third of of container capacity because I mean, what you've had, Mike, is is ships that have well, some have actually been diverted straight away, but some have been on hold, effectively waiting to see what will happen. So there's been massive delays. So yeah, you know, something like thirty percent or a third in the in the mid term, it's reckoned that if this, for instance, pattern of going around the Cape was to continue that would soak up five or 6% of uh, global capacity, but there are a lot of ships coming on. So so that's not gonna be too much of a hardship, I think. Yeah, it's in, is, is say for instance, on uh, Asia to North Europe,
1: you, you could add another two ships into those loops quite comfortably. In terms of transits at the moment, what's about two weeks into the Med from Asia, a, a little bit less than that, added time onto on Northern Europe.
2: Yeah, obviously, whatever you go up, you're coming back again. So, effectively, it's doubling it. And, and then you've got issues of bad weather going around the Cape, which everybody forgets about, which can be quite problematic. And,
1: you know, the longer you're at sea, the more potential you're, you are to getting delays. And obviously, the oil price is going up, and that's going to feed into higher fuel costs for carriers. What's happening to these headhaul rates on those lanes on that Asia-Europe trade, mate? Really uh, going gangbusters, like, uh, basically. You've got sort of rates
2: and the market rates, if you like. I mean, looking at spot rates, for instance, at Drury's rate as of yesterday for a 40-foot, that was an average rate of $4,406 per 40-foot. And that is an increase of 164% since the 21st of December. But people I talk to are saying, well, if I could get that rate, I'd be very happy because Rates are now being offered of up to 10 or even more, including various premium surcharges for equipment and to guarantee slots, etc. And people obviously are having to put more stuff on the water because if you're extending these supply chains by another two weeks, for instance, you've just got to get more stuff going. So they're bringing cargo forward ahead of Chinese New Year. At the same time, there's no ships and there's no equipment.
1: And how is that playing out in terms of the uh, the trades from Asia into the States, Mike, East Coast and West Coast? I think that you've know you you've got the same sort of
2: issues in terms of equipment because it, if there's only so much equipment to go around and it's not going to be there, so they'll have those same issues. Are you talking about rates,
1: Mike, on, on this one? Spot rates, yes.
2: Yeah, spot rates. I mean, they, they, they are going up, but not to the same extent. So far anyway, I mean they they're up about a third since mid-December at about um what Los Angeles two thousand seven hundred and ninety for a forty-foot and Shanghai, New York, four thousand one hundred and seventy. They're up thirty-six percent. But a lot of carriers have announced new rates as from the fifteenth, having given various notices of that. And I've got people telling me here now that from Monday One or two of the big carriers are asking for $5,000 for the West Coast and $7,000 for the East Coast.
1: So they're trying to build that into that Trans-Pacific market as well. So carriers are looking for for big increases on the, what, from the 15th of January? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to be speaking to John Munro about what all this means for the Trans-Pacific contracting season as those spot rates rise. But on the Asia-Europe trades, those annual or longer-term contracts, they tend to be negotiated around about the turn of the year while all of this has been happening. Where have those negotiations got to? Have these contracts been ripped up? Have they they all just been on hold? What's been happening? Quite a mixture. Like
2: there were contracts that were agreed. There were contracts that were stalled. Carriers walked away from some negotiations because at that particular time, rates, in their opinion, were sub-economic. And they were not going to sign for a year based on those rates. There were short-term rates agreed for three months at a time, but you know, what we're hearing is some of those contracts that were actually signed have effectively been ripped up or declared null and void. So it's not it's not a good position to be in because you've budgeted for a certain amount of freight and suddenly you've got to pay a, little, a lot more.
1: How is all this uh... Boosting the charter market, Mike, as you mentioned, we've got a lot of deliveries due this year, but it must be propping it up a little bit if, if sh- ships are becoming more scarce at least.
2: Yeah, I think, I think that's what everybody was concerned about. This chronic oversupply that was going to hit this year, some 3 million CEU of uh, new build deliveries due this year. Having said that, the charter market was already quite tight because people were tending to hang on to their ships a little bit. The rates were still good enough. The uh, scrapping was slow. And, of course, a lot of the owners had long-term charters agreed during the boom period that they were still running out of. So, effectively, the charter market was still quite tight, becoming a little bit weaker. But, of course, all this has changed now uh, with demand. Ships that were going on to sublet have suddenly disappeared. Charters have been extended and effectively the charter market is sold out.
1: Just coming back to Chinese New Year and the build up to that when factories close second week of February. What are we expecting to happen in for shippers? I mean, is it going to be easy to get your cargoes out of Asia? And what are the carriers, what sort of planning are the carriers making or are they announced much so far? The answer to that is no, it's not going to be easy.
2: Ships are in the wrong place, containers are in the wrong place. I mean, it's reckoned that there's going to be a shortfall of some 800,000 TU of empty equipment prior to the Chinese New Year. Ships will not be there. One or two carriers are taking an opportunity. I mean, HMM, I saw, are introducing a an extra loader next week of 11,000 TU ship. And obviously this will encourage people with even smaller ships to get get in place because if the rates are this higher, then they can make money again. So it's not gonna be easy. And equipment I think is going to be quite the biggest issue because you may be able to get space, but not equipment. And some of the carriers that have equipment might not have the space. So what's
1: the advice then? Book early, pay a premium.
2: Well, effectively you just got to pay through the nose you, you just got to just bite the bullet i think really on on this one until it gets resolved eventually even if the red sea is shut with all this capacity or this supply there things should start to ease and containers will then get back in the right place so if they can get through um chinese new year and just after maybe then things will hopefully settle down again
1: Okay, Mike, and and you've also been covering how all this is impacting backhaul trades. Carriers have been invoking force majeure clauses in their bills of lading, which allows them to backdate surcharges charges as far as November, when actually there wasn't any issues on services via the Red Sea, as well as introducing a range of new surcharges and freight of all kinds rates. Uh, is there any of this negotiable? No, in
2: short. When I first saw this, I thought, ah, force majeure, in my line of business, it's meant that you could abandon that particular port and dump the cargo somewhere else. So that was my first thought about what they were doing. But obviously, what they were doing is just to null and void that bill of lading contract so that they could do what they like on freights, charges and everything else. And even in the case of the US, where you've got the FMC's 30-day notice period, the FMC were quite quickly given out waivers on this, so they were still able to pay these charges. So so effectively, people with cargo on the water will have to pay these extra charges before they can get release of their boxes. Uh, in the
1: uh, US, agricultural exporters are already warning that these surcharges on backhauls will be quite devastating, uh, but January is also peak season for certain recycling shipments to Asia from parts of Europe, and it, that's proven a major issue here as well. On which point I'd like to bring in Rob Powell, Managing Director of UK-based recycling exports specialist, Myro Logistics, who's fresh from a meeting of the UK Recycling Association. Hello, Rob. How are recycling exporters in the UK feeling right now? I suspect well-treated by container lines is probably not the phrase that you're going to give me. Yeah, no, no. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Uh, the industry has been
3: hit hard, at least temporarily, whilst the potential what's seen as a correction filters through the freight costs. Some shippers have been caught with thousands, some with literally hundreds of thousands of dollars of unexpected charges uh, from the transition charges around the Cape in Africa, avoiding the Suez. The recycled commodities industry, it's a, it's a pretty dynamic industry. What happens is that contracts are made on a monthly basis for shipment the following month. Shipping lines tend to know this. They price their export shipping accordingly in the same way, in parallel with how these contracts are made. In this case, it's particularly troubling because most of the contracts were made in December, around about mid-December, for shipments moving out in January. To be hit on the 21st and 22nd of December with surcharges which were kicking in on the 1st of January uh, was unexpected and in a lot of cases quite devastating. Uh, I'll give you one example. We had one particular client who had booked with us 30 containers loading in between Christmas and New Year. That particular shipping line notified us on the afternoon of the 21st of December which is too late to change the arrangements. Um, They don't want to let down the load point. They can't let down the sales contract. Those 30 containers cost them $30,000. The actual base freight of the container in the first place was $700, which increased to 1,700. These margins are quite low. They rely on high volume of containers um, and they also work on very low margins.
1: So, uh, not a great Christmas then. What sort of volumes are we talking about with some of these members of the UK Recycle Association, or with your with your own business? Well, recyclables
3: account for approximately forty percent of loaded containers leaving the UK. So you can imagine the sort of volumes that are involved here. Exporters move anything from one container from anything up to 150, 200 containers per week. But it's, the volumes are significant.
1: Just be devil's advocate here, Rob, carriers might make the case that rates for these back trades were already too low in the first place. Well beyond what they needed to recoup to cover their costs. And plus now they've obviously they've been hit by all these extra costs, more fuel costs, et cetera. Is there any, does there any validity to that from your point of view?
3: I think it was agreed and understood that the rates were definitely too low. It doesn't take a genius to work out that moving a 40-foot container from, let's say, Manchester to Ho Chi Minh City, door to port at $450, someone's making a loss somewhere. So it was understood that this was going to change. And it was also expected that there would be charges coming from the crisis in the Suez and the Middle East. I think what's troubled, and and that's calling it lightly, what's what's upset the industry is the manner in which it was done. It could have been handled a lot better. I think had more notice been given and a more considered approach to how you know business generally runs in the recycled commodities, had that been handled better, there'd be a lot less negative feeling. And, you know, a lot less losses incurred because there would have been enough time to renegotiate or at least get the already agreed contracts out of the system. But as it's transpired, this hasn't happened, especially I think most troubling are some of the costs for shipments that had already sailed prior to the announcement being brought out. In some cases, containers loaded and sailed in November are being hit with $400 per container for transit charges for the vessel moving around the Cape. That's very hard to deal with, very hard to deal with in any business, I guess, especially one that moves such high volumes and, and works at the, the low margins that they do.
1: Is this bringing back deja vu, perhaps, from exporters back to the days of the pandemic when many Perhaps justifiably felt like carriers were a little over aggressive on pricing and and a little bit dismissive when it came to customer service and consideration. Well, I think that certain lines,
3: and I'm not gonna name them, who had, you know, not come out with the best reputation over the COVID and post-COVID period. I think they'd managed to, through time and stability of service, had managed to almost move past that. Point where, you know, where the industry or where exporters have been referring to that as a negative period, it was kind of almost like a new normal. But I would say that this has definitely sullied the reputation of certain shipping lines in the industry. I mean, how can you possibly do business where in an industry where, let's say, um, you've got your sales price, which is fixed, you've got your purchase price, which is fixed, but you then have what could potentially be considered a, a variable, which could change at any minute, even you know retrospectively as part of your contract or transaction. That's very difficult to do business in that environment. Isn't
1: that a case of just making sure the contract doesn't allow that? The contract with the shipping line? Yes. That's
3: an interesting point. During a, a, a recent meeting that I had in a Q and A session, I was asked some interesting questions by, I guess, people that aren't as heavily in the in the business as, let's say, a freight forwarder would be, and and they simply asked, you know, how can the shipping lines get away with this? Who's actually policing the shipping lines? Yeah, but you and I both know that the terms on the back of a bill of lading are particularly bulletproof, honed over, let's say, probably centuries. So, you know, there's not a huge amount you can do about it. If you're accepting that bill of lading as part of your export transaction, you've got to go along with the terms on the back of it. So subsequently, you know, it's it's very difficult to enforce. And I don't think any shipping line would agree to, uh, especially in this environment, a, a fixed price that can't possibly change under any circumstance. But, you know, as in what other business commercially works in that way? For example, if you were to jump on an airplane and it was diverted because there was a problem at the airport of destination, let's say it landed at a different airport and they would put you up in a hotel, let's say, probably apologize, move you on to your actual destination when they possibly could. They wouldn't you know, not let you off the plane unless you paid an extra surcharge because of it. I don't think there's any other industry that probably operates in the same way that a shipping line would in this circumstance. And I just want to make clear, actually, uh, that it's not every shipping line that has acted in the same manner. Uh, Some shipping lines have had a, a far more reasonable approach to how they've implemented the surcharges. I'll give you some examples. Some only charged for bookings made after the announcement had been made, let's say, from the 25th of December onwards. Some only charged from the middle of January. Some are only bringing increases in one particularly at the end of January. Those shipping lines, from what we've seen, have benefited hugely with volumes. And I'd probably dare say a bit of goodwill as well by their approach towards the situation. But yeah, it's not every line that's acted exactly the same. There's just a few that have acted in the same manner, um, which has been,
1: you could call it aggressive. Well, hopefully we can get a a shipping line on to explain some of these charges at, at some point soon. And if anyone from, uh, from any of the shipping lines is listening, you're more than welcome to contact me. But for now, Rob Powell, Managing Director of Miro Logistics, thanks for coming on and explaining your situation at the moment to us all. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Mike, is this going to take us back to square one in terms of shipper-carrier relations, do you think? I think even worse than square one, I think, really. I think they, they effects of been being trashed
2: I mean, things were much, much better last year. And we saw that at TPM when the carriers were out in force, smoothing the the shippers, everything looked tickety-boo. But I I think what people are saying to me is that they, they fully understand these extra charges will be on, but the manner in which it's been done, the force majeure situation, the enormous rate hikes that they've introduced is really effectively price gouging and taking advantage of the situation and uh, effectively deja vu to the pandemic period and all of those issues then so yeah i mean to answer the question yeah it's really the relationships are really quite poor and i think people will have long memories of this as they did before and i know certain shippers that will no longer use particular shipping lines from how they were treated during the pandemic and maybe the list will be getting
1: longer on this particular occasion. Thanks, Mike. Next up, we have John Munro, who's been uh, working on the trans-Pacific trade for many, many years. And I'll be getting his views on how SUSE is playing out there and what supply chain executives can do to cope with this rapidly changing shipping scape. But finally, Mike, are we seeing any sign of a cargo shift to air freight options? Apparently so. I know nothing about this sector. I have to
2: be clear, but... What you do know is that it's a last resort for shippers. I mean, we're beginning to see now. I mean, you saw Tesla suspending production in Germany. The, the, the knock-on effect of all this is, is really going to be massive. So, yes, I think the answer to that is people that can and can afford to and are desperate will use air freight. So good
1: news for the air freight industry. For now, Mike Wackett, thanks for helping guide Lodestar listeners through this maelstrom that's been hitting supply chains today. Thank you. No problem at all, so, Mike. See you soon. Bye. Next up, we have a man with a uh, storied history in freight and shipping that covers senior roles with a who's who of companies in the Liner, NVOCC, and 3PL worlds. He currently represents a, a number of Asian based logistics companies. He recently launched a SaaS platform, SYSM where factories can book online against their orders. During the pandemic-driven shipping gold rush, he ran the Alibaba-backed shipping line, Transfor Shipping. And maybe we'll hear what happened there later if we have time. And of course, he's the president of the company that carries his name, John Munro Consulting. John, welcome to the Lodestar podcast.
0: Thank you, Mike. I'm happy to be here and, and thank you for having me.
1: John, we heard earlier in this podcast how the Red Sea crisis is taking so much capacity out of play. A third of all container ships, 800 ships, 10 million TUs of capacity currently affected. According to Drury, diversions via the Cape of Good Hope to avoid the Suez Canal are are adding what around six days onto Asia-US East Coast services, 10 days to Northern Europe, two weeks from Asia to the Med. You were predicting last month that disruptions would cause a huge asset imbalance that maybe would take until the second half of the year to clear up. Given how their situation has deteriorated since then, what's your thinking now?
0: Well, thank you for asking that question, Mike, because I, I think about it a lot. You know, I tracked what happened in COVID and what got created in 2020, which was a massive asset imbalance because the carriers initiated so many blank sailings. We've got a similar situation. It's a little bit different, but it's very similar to what happened in May and June of 2020. We have so many ships out of sync that have basically moved to Europe that um, they're delayed in coming back. So they're not on their sailing schedule. So people in China, factories in China, want to book against the schedule and and the ship's not going to arrive. So we've got them so out of sync that it's going to be hard to get it back. So it's going to create, and it already is creating. I, I talked to my team in China this week, and we're already starting to see space problems particularly out of places like Ningbo, you know, you have the the vessels in Europe and many of those vessels need to come back.
1: Uh, as the Lodestar has been reporting, this isn't just about the ships. We saw during the pandemic that equipment can quite quickly end up in all the wrong places. Uh, and then you might also get carriers not wanting to load empties because they're keen to get back to get the front haul rate. Can you shed some light on how all this happens and, and is this something that primarily affects Asia Europe shippers or is it already clear that this is
0: going to spread to the US as those global fleets of boxes get displaced, I guess is the right word? Sure, Mike. Okay, we we have to look at it this way. When you look at a typical string of vessels moving containers from Asia to Europe or Asia to US, the balance of equipment or of demand is about two to one. That means, that is to say, that two containers will come this way and only one will come that way. In other words, You've already got an equipment imbalance in in the normal scheme of things. And that requires that carriers reposition empty containers to keep up the demand of moving, flowing in the Trans-Pacific. That's normally. Now, all of a sudden, with these vessels out of sync, you have all these vessels on this long pilgrimage, and you've got all of this equipment that's sitting on the ships. But you you have to add to that. Once they get to the destination, it's going to be a couple of weeks before those containers come back. So when you go back to China or any place in Asia and you have an inventory of containers, all of a sudden that inventory is drying up. It doesn't matter whether those containers go to the US or whether they go to Europe. So if you're sitting in Ningbo and you're trying to make a booking, the question is, do you have equipment? And right now we're already seeing the equipment as well as space start to dry up. So with some shipping lines, depending upon their equipment flow, They might have a space problem, but they don't have an equipment problem. And with others, we're starting to see they've already got an equipment problem. So the demand for equipment is the equipment's being depleted, the demand's up. So there's a problem getting equipment. So if you get space, you might not be able to get the container. And if we recall, this is what drove the rates up back in COVID. And this is what's driving the rates up now, because the carriers have an asset imbalance, which I've always been talking about. And that's what this is really about. It's not about COVID. It's not about the Red Sea. It's about the way now the assets are managed. So, what does that
1: look like for shippers? Are we talking about deteriorating schedule reliability, blanks that weren't planned,
0: possible box shortages, rollovers? Well, I, I can tell you because I'm, you know, I'm on the phone with companies that move containers regularly, talking about what they're going to do. Right now, if you look at North America, the West Coast is easier to get to than the East Coast because the East Coast is strung out everywhere. So uh, a number of companies are trying to go uh, what we call mini land bridge or IPI into inland locations or onto the East Coast, meaning come to West Coast port like LA or Seattle, LA Long Beach or, or Seattle Tacoma, and then on the rail through to say Atlanta as opposed to all water. But what that's going to do is create more congestion on the West Coast. So we see this starting to build up and we're seeing it just before the Lunar New Year, which means it's going to start to back up. And it could extend throughout most of the first half, which in and of itself, that lack of space, lack of equipment will create a floor for rates uh, going into the new contract year. As you mentioned, we've got Chinese New Year in, in February
1: when factories closed down. If you look at the US market, the holiday sales were quite good. December year and year import volumes were, were up. Say this continues in, into January and, and through to that Chinese New Year, we've got reasonable demand. Where are you seeing those bottlenecks building
0: then? Is it the West Coast? Well, you know, I wrote in December, or December, actually in November, that if we saw enough of an increase, and it didn't have to be a lot in the holiday demand, and then the carriers blight their sailings the way they did in 2020, we'd have a similar situation that we did under COVID. Now, it happened a little bit differently, but it did happen. So our demand for the holiday season was a lot higher than expected. And that cleared out the warehouses. So depending upon the company, you're seeing new orders come in. Although a lot of companies, I must say, are very careful. They're taking a lot of precautions because they don't know what's going to happen. But what I perceive that will happen is they will start moving their shipments up if they perceive that it's going to take longer and longer to get to their DCs. And I think they have no choice, meaning move orders up as you start looking at your spring and summer merchandise, uh, all the way back to the holiday season, because there's so many unknowns and we've already lived through the situation where it took forever to get product in. And now we've had a clearing out of the warehouses. So now we're looking at another phase of bringing product in and that demand could create congestion again in the even the US West Coast.
1: And I guess you're also factoring in low water on the Panama Canal. So- is pushing people towards the West Coast. There's holdups on, on the Mexico border. So if you want to come into Mexico and come up, it's another factor. And I guess I, I was speaking to some retailers, and, and they were telling me that they're already looking, maybe if they can move cargo from the East Coast to the West Coast, and they're doing that, looking at the contracting season, that that possible union action on the East Coast might be a factor in their thinking just
0: because they've been burnt in the past. Sure, sure, absolutely. You know, it's it sort of the perfect storm. Mike, when you think about the US and you look at the, a map of the US and you look at your gateways, and you know now we've got Mexico as our largest trading partner. And you look at the border being closed and a border like Laredo where there's 10,000 trucks a day that come across that border. You back that up for five days. And then the rail as well, I think there's 21 trains a day. Those were backed up for five or six days. So you can imagine the congestion. You add to that the Panama Canal to where mother nature seems to have teamed up with the Houthis to help the carriers increase the rates. So you've got the bottlenecks in in three areas that are really necessary to move product to the US. I'm going to come to the contracting season in a moment, but what do you think all
1: this does to, especially on these US trades from Asia, where do you think spot rates go? Because there's been a few diverse predictions the last few days. Some people are saying, oh, we're going to hit the lull after Chinese New Year and that things will sort of calm down then. But, But there's a lot of variables out there what do you think is going to happen? Are you a betting man?
0: Yeah, I, I am, and I already doubled down. You know, it was interesting because I think I made a post on LinkedIn. There was an analysis on Seeking Alpha of ZIM rates, and they they were saying this is such a short term thing. And one of my comments was, most financial analysts don't know our industry. It's it's not so short term, and and so I bought a lot of ZIM stock, and I'm happy I did because right now when, when we look at what's happening, when we look at what's going to happen with rates. Rates will go up. I mean, there's a, a GRI predicted for the 15th, which will move West Coast rates up to 5,000 dollars, so per container, from China-based ports to West Coast. And we're looking at all water rates of a little over 7,7,300 7, to the East Coast. You know, How, how will rates fare? If, if you're sitting in the seat of running a shipping line today, your goal is to make sure that these rates stay through the contracting season, so you can get your contract rates up high enough to where the, there's some kind of remuneration so you can make some money. When the rates drop to twelve to $1,500 a container to the West Coast, nobody can make money at that. And so the carriers were projected to lose about $10 billion this year. But now it's sort of turned upside down and the carriers have a chance at making a decent money, not as much as under COVID maybe, but still to become profitable. And that really depends upon the rate levels of the contracts.
1: So let's have a look at the the rate levels of the contracts. I just put a few things out there. Panama, the wet season's due to start in May. Now, whether it will, no one knows. Obviously no one knows what's going on in the Red Sea. Let's say Mexico continues to be a political football in the lead up to the elections. It looked quite good for carriers, doesn't it? If we say that this contracting season would normally, for those who don't know, would normally be February, April, signing contracts, April, May. Maybe into June. Have you got any advice to people who are negotiating contracts with the carriers at the moment?
0: Yeah. You know, this is what I've advised people for the last couple of years because you never know what's going to happen. One, split your business between carriers and NVOCCs because, quite frankly, the carriers under COVID walked away from some of their commitments on the MQCs of the contracts. So you need to know that you've got something in your back pocket just to move things. I mean, I've talked to people this week that are willing to pay premiums to the West Coast just to make sure things are moving because everybody now is very nervous about what's going to happen. Now, sure, a lot of people are saying, well, this is post-Chinese New Year, it's going to drop. I don't think so. I, like I said, I'm a betting man and I bet on Zim. They're in my window and I expect the stock to continue to climb because I expect these rates to hold. Now, what they do with spot rates, spot rates will really determine the contract rate level at the time of signing. So it's important to understand The relationship between the spot rates and the contract rates. Even if the carriers will give you a break on the contract rates versus the spot rates, if the spot rates are down to a low level or a much lower level rate than current contracts, then everybody's going to not sign a large commitment. They're going to try and ride the spot market. So the carriers have to get as much of a commitment as possible to lock it in for the next year, and then they won't have so much uh, volatility. Given
1: all these variables, Johns and your extensive experience, what advice would you give to uh, any less experienced supply chain leaders in terms of what they should be doing right now to make sure their teams, their suppliers, their customers are prepared for, I don't know if planning is the right word, firefighting, communicating, how are they going to manage all these variables?
0: Uh, a couple of things. As I, as I said earlier, get really close to your carrier and to one or two NVOCCs. The next thing I would do that I think a lot of people woke up to under COVID, but I'm not so certain everybody acted on it, is you got to go digital. Most people have an ERP that is, I won't say it's archaic, but even the best ERPs don't really give you transparency back to the origins. And you really need that transparency. So you want, in fact, that's what CISM does. It gives transparency to bookings overseas, but that's what they need. And what I tell people is you have to own your supply chain. So you have to document your factories by lane, by load port, and have a backup plan for your top factories should you find some kind of bottleneck. And that backup plan, that plan B, if you will, can either be another factory that manufactures the same thing, or an alternate load port, or an alternate discharge port. Under COVID, a lot of people moved to the West Coast, and there were a huge flurry of transloads. Everybody started transloading. We had, you know, under COVID, it started as an asset imbalance with equipment and vessels, and then Chassis in the US, then warehouses, and the cost of all of that went up. So you have to anticipate, not react, but anticipate, have a plan, document that plan, and make sure that's socialized within the organization. A part of that is connecting the, you know, in most companies, you have two procurement entities procurement of product and procurement of logistics. And typically they don't talk to one another. That plan has to include both sides. So the procurement of product is not going out and saying, wow, I found a really great factory at a really great cost. But then the logistics side is saying, yeah, but the cost of getting it there is now going to offset the cost savings that you've had. So you have to spend time owning your supply chain. Great advice. Um, You've seen this at the coalface. I mentioned
1: Alibaba and Transfor, You set up a shipping company during the pandemic. The U.S. operation has been wound up now, but were there any lessons that might illustrate some of the points that you've just made that you would take from that that you can share with our audience today?
0: You know, setting up a shipping line in the middle of a pandemic is not for the faint-hearted. It was both an adrenaline rush and a struggle. I got kicked out of my first terminal that I got, and I had to navigate through six terminals until I got uh, PCT and I, I got some stability. And what I would say there, the real learning experience I have is that I woke up to the fact that. How valuable the terminal is, you know. On the West Coast, the port entities, whether it be the Port of Long Beach, LA, all the West Coast ports, they don't control anything. It's the terminal operators, and the terminal is the economy. If you don't have a terminal for your ship, you can't move product in, into the U.S. So it's really come down to what are the terminals in the U.S. Um, probably the same way when you look at Mexico, the gate crossing, you know, the, the crossing into Mexico. So those are really important things that I think people never thought about before. And one of the weaknesses we've got today is we don't have transparency enough into the terminal operations so you can tell where your container is and when it's going to leave and when it's discharged. You have to rely upon the carrier for that. John Munro, that was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. Thank
1: you, Mike. And anytime, feel free to reach out. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.